Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favorite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish dash tech dash news. Hi, welcome to this afternoon. This podcast. I'm talking with Adrian Fleming, Director of Environment, Social and Governance at Diligence Corporation and the founder of um, Acuvio. How's it going, uh, Adrian? Hey, Ron. Not too bad. Not too bad at all. Now, first of all, before we start, we're going to do today's going to be a great podcast. We're going to talk about the uh, about the journey uh, you followed, founding a startup, and then and then basically getting to a certain level where where you got to, s- to sell it on. So we're going to basically be going yes. through the journey of a, of a startup and how what how you started it, how you got the idea for your startup, how it started, etc., and go from there. But before that, just a bit about your background before you got into where you are now. Would be great. Friend, a uh, bit of my background. Well, um, I'm a Clare man, so as being uh, brought up in Clare, obviously played a lot of hurling as a young fella and played it at a pretty high level. So sport for most of my uh, younger days was the uh, focus of my life day in, day out. Um, but at the same time, I didn't let, uh, you know, the academia kind of struggle either. I kept a, a good focus on that. And my interest was very much in technology from a very early age. Um, I think I was 10 or 11 when I built my first uh, PC. So that was kind of my first uh, intro into technology and putting pieces together and coming up with that kind of thing. And that evolved then over time. Um Ultimately, it kind of went dormant then uh, during my teenage years until I kind of went to university where I did computer science. And, you know, from a very early age, even after building that one PC, I always wanted to create a, create a company, um, you know, employ loads of people and sell it for millions. And that was always the plan. Um, just I didn't know what I wanted to do. With, you know, I didn't have that idea or I didn't know what area I wanted that to be in. So I suppose at the same time, I was always that kid who was, you know, making sure that everything was recycled right. Um, I was always kind of looking out for planting trees, you know, kind of keeping an eye on nature. Um, And so I was always kind of, uh, you know, fairly confident that I could do a a startup and could, you know, create something, but I recognized that I needed some experience first before I could do that credibly. So went the university route, uh, after that joined Accenture, spent a couple of years there, got some invaluable experience there, and actually, in while at Accenture, that was my first uh, touch point into what was called CSR at the time, Corporate Social Responsibility, yeah. which is now more commonly known as Environmental Social Governance or Sustainability. That was my first uh, kind of touch point. And, you know, after that, um, you know, I left Accenture to move closer to home because I was kind of playing a, a bit of sport with the county, playing hurling with the county and wanted to get, uh, wanted to give my sh- myself a shot there. So I took a job with Dell as a program manager, IT project manager down in, uh, down in Limerick. And again, you know, really enjoyed that. And, and while I was there, um, you know, the, you know, Dell had made a, a very publicly, um, announcement that they had gone carbon neutral. And, uh, you know, I had stock options like most employees at Dell at the time and, you know, came in the following morning um, after some announcement and, uh, you know, the, the share price had dropped by 15, 15% or something. And that was on the back of the Wall Street Journal picking up 
they carbon neutral claims that Dell had made were were not accurate. You know, yeah. they were they were they weren't based in fact. So you know that got me thinking. You know, how can a large corporation like Dell make such an elementary mistake in reporting their greenhouse gas emissions? And uh, you know, it just got me thinking. You know, there must be a solution out there, and there was one solution um, out there at the time. This is two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, and it was a type of software that you know had to be deployed at each location. Um, built on fairly old tech at the time, and it was very, very expensive. And, you know, to put it in context, in 2007, 2008, you know, AWS, SaaS, all of these kind of things, we're now really starting to, to build some momentum, really starting to go into the mainstream. And, you know, it just seemed to me to be a great opportunity to build a system that a large corporation like Dell could use to report their greenhouse gas emissions globally without, you know, exceptional costs like the traditional systems. And for me personally, you know, that was a great way to kind of combine my passion for, you know, environmental um, and tech um, and do something local. And um, yeah, it just ticked a number of boxes for me. Um, so then, of course, I set about trying to figure out, right, can I do this? Is there a market? Um, I have no idea about sales, marketing. I'm a tech guy. I'm yeah. a sports guy. I don't. I don't know any of this. Um, you know. So what do I do? So um, I, I reached out to a few of the usual suspects, like the County Enterprise Board and um, you know Enterprise Ireland and things like that. And I joined a program in uh, Limerick, um, based out of the LIT campus, uh, which was called Leap at the time, run by a guy called Graham. Graham Royce and uh, Dr. Hughes, um, who I'll be forever in my desk to both of them. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I under I, I went into a kind of a twelve month um, you know uh, course. I, I think it was just called the Leap course at the time. It was a predecessor to Enterprise Start. And uh, in there, I learned that you know a sales channel is not a channel on Sky. It it is a, a, a place that you can get sales through. Yeah. Um, it was really that bad. My knowledge of sales and marketing was really that bad. I learned basic um, basic things like that. And, uh, you know, what I learned very quickly was that actually, you know, I had a, I had a fairly good acumen for this kind of stuff and I picked it up pretty quickly. And, um, you know, we were, we were building out the team at the same time, which was perhaps the, the biggest challenge. So I kind of logically structured it a bit like you two. Yeah. Um, you know, so all, all people equal. Uh, let's get somebody to do sales. Let's get somebody to do the, the coding and then let somebody else then, like me, maybe head it all up and yeah. try and grow it. So that was the, the trifecta, so to speak. And that was how I uh, built up the team to start. And earlier you mentioned a bit about the competitor, you guys you saw that were, had, to be, had to be installed manually in each, each computer locally. And that reminds me of years ago when I was in, my, in my, one of my last jobs. We had, to, we had to install Microsoft uh, Office 97 onto one of our onto the computers, or 99, and it was all done 43 floppy disks. Whereas when you go and do it now, we download it from the cloud onto your computer. Whereas back then, they didn't exist, so you had no way of going, you had to do that. So you had to go onto each computer and manually install floppy disks. There was no CD version at that point. So that's what it kind of reminds me of. I'm thinking, it's scary to think that back then, how things were done and now, People are embracing the SaaS and pass model of how you can do things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, that that solution I, I did get to see it some years later. Um, 
you know, a, a client actually showed me what they had been using for about 10 years at that stage to do their greenhouse gas emissions reporting in, in uh, Central Europe. And what was remarkable to me was that, yes, it was a system, it was a software solution, but it actually, because it was an adapted kind of EHS solution, it wasn't purpose-built. So actually using it for greenhouse gas emissions reporting or climate change reporting or ESG reporting was actually really cumbersome. And it was at least, it used to take at least twice as long as it would to do it on Excel, which kind of defeats some of the purpose of yeah. really. Um, so, you know, I'm glad to say that from the very early stages, you know, our ethos at Acuvio was always, you know, let's make it easy to use for our users. You should not need to be an expert to use this. Um, and our ultimate vision was to make a solution that could be adopted mass market. Um, and the only way to do that is make it foolproof, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, we're still one of the only solutions on the market today uh, that you don't need to be an expert to use. Um, you know, your average um, office office employee, uh, you know, a receptionist, um, an intern, can pick up this software and can start creating carbon footprint data, ESG reports for their company uh, very, very quickly. And that's still a unique value proposition in the market. Well, well to me, so, I always look at yeah. things like when I'm writing some articles and I want to make sure it's proof, I ask my parents, can they understand it and read it? If they understand it, then it works. So in every developing software, or something like that, if your parents can understand it and use it, then you know you've, you've done well. Yeah, I don't think so in my case. Uh, I think they all thought I was daft uh, yeah. in 2009 doing a, uh, uh, creating a software company that was measuring greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and I think my friends, colleagues, relatives, everybody thought I was daft. So, um, But my parents were incredibly supportive. Um, but uh, yes, I did try the parent test where I tried to explain it to them. They did help me with uh, it. Um, with kind of developing my elevator pitch in that lean yeah. program, um, and uh, I think for a finish, I think they gave up uh, trying to understand it. So, uh, <laughs> well, but um, yeah. yeah, what's me even is like basically the person who invented the wheel. Before the wheel was there, something else was being used, and everyone thought, okay, this the wheel is not going to take off. It did take off, and what you've done, you, you came at a time when it's wasn't directed to have that. Now it is. Now everyone's talking about that. So you came in the right time. And now, if you were to go and develop this idea now, everyone would be going, great idea, because they all, they all believe in this. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it was it was, it was was quite interesting. And it was, you know, when you're talking about the entrepreneurial uh, journey, um, you know, in those very early days when I went out meeting companies doing my market research and trying to figure out, you know, what would a product look like, what features and functions would it have, should it have, these kind of things. Um, I met some very interesting characters in companies across um, across Ireland, across the UK, and a couple in the US as well. And, you know, sometimes when I was leaving, leaving the meeting, you know, and I would be meeting with environmental health and safety people, talking to them about sustainability and greenhouse gas emissions, the amount of job offers I got leaving was ridiculous. Yeah. Like they were kind of almost saying, look, this greenhouse gas emissions thing is a bit crazy. Do you want a job? Like we would love to have you in here, you know, working on environmental stuff or tech stuff. Yeah. And, you know, it was almost sympathetic, which yeah. kind of, you know, really undermined my confidence at the time, but I perse persevered and I just kept going. And, uh, you know, what I found fascinating was that when I came back to them, maybe two years later with a product, um, that immediately had them, you know, bought into it. You know, they were immediately kind of saying, well, hang on, you actually built this, right? Okay, well, 
let's let's see it, let's use it, you know, and and they actually did, and that's how we got, you know, our first three customers. I have to say, you know, in those in those early days, um, there was no talk of ESG or sustainability or carbon reporting, with the exception of some in the UK around a new piece of legislation called the CRC, the Carbon Reduction Commitment, mm-hmm. and. You know, persevering and keeping your motivation up was really, really difficult in those early days. But uh, I'm nothing if not stubborn, and uh, you know that was part of the reason why I kept kept going. But also, I had belief in what we were doing. Um, ultimately, you know, as we one of the big challenges we found was that because it was so new, because the sector was so new that actually companies didn't have a line item. The, the size of companies we were going for, now you've got to put this in context, in that we're not going to small companies yeah. um, in local you know, towns and cities. We're, we're going to multinationals because they're the ones that need this software the most. And we're going to them, we're saying, look, here's a product, it costs you know, 30, 40, 50K, whatever. And they didn't have a budget for it. So it went into what was called discretionary budget. And in the context of kind of the economic situation globally in 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, we were trying to get the thing going. We were competing for budget against replacing a van or fixing a pipe. You know, there, you know, if there was something catastrophic happened at a plant or in an organization, the 30K that we were, we were charging could have been redeployed to replace a van because we were still seen as a yeah. nice to have. Nowadays... There's a line item. It's urgent. It's top of mind. It's top priority. It, it's it's non-negotiable. It just gets just gets done, and it's a completely radical radical change. Um, and even the people we were talking to back then, you might have a champion within a large organization that might be an environmental officer or something at a particular site, and they would champion you up through the organization to get something sold in. But right now, it's coming from CEOs. CEOs, CFOs, you know, heads of investor relations in particular um, are the ones that are actually reaching out and buying this stuff. Um, and it just goes to show that you know, they were the same personas that wouldn't really entertain it uh, 10 years ago, but now we're driving it. And it's a remarkable shift, I think, in, in the market dynamics. And I guess it must have been harder. If you're trying to sell this product and nobody else is doing what you're doing, how can they compare you to somebody else when there's nothing else doing it? That must be tough. Yeah, so it, it really was. Um, so thankfully, the, there was the carbon reduction commitment uh, piece of legislation that was introduced in 2010 in the UK. So from that, upsprang a few uh, startups, a bit like ourselves. They were more focused on the UK legislation, very much point solution, whereas we were built from the ground up to be a global solution. So when we were when we started to actually compete with others, when there were others actually uh, there, it was great because. We were able to go in and say, yeah, we do all of that CRC stuff, but also into the future, we do the global stuff. So we targeted companies that had a global footprint, but had a UK legislation repaying at that point in time. And so we were seen as the more future-proof, forward-looking solution. And so that's how we started to make, you know, pick up some market traction and actually grow. Um, And it was that differentiation, you know, that that outward, uh, long-term vision uh, is what companies bought into ultimately. And I guess you said earlier you, you, you work for the Clive County GA. I guess GA would help you as well because you would have learned lessons of leadership and how to work as a team. Yeah, well, look, uh, yeah, that's for sure, right? So leadership, 
crisis management sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, standing up in front of, in front of your peers in a dressing room and kind of, and you know, the chips are down and trying to motivate them and, you know, leading by, um, you know, speaking, but also leading by uh, doing stuff on the field as well is, uh, is something that I brought into my professional career. So um, when things were down, I was always one that would roll up my sleeves and get stuck in and it didn't matter if it was... Uh, you know, if it was a task, if, if, I, if it was even just cleaning the office or something that needed to be done, I just got in and, and did it. And I think, you know, that kind of work ethic kind of rubbed off on a lot of people within the company and they shared that um, that work ethic. And, uh, you know, I owe that uh, to sport, effectively. Um, I, owe that, I owe that kind of work ethic, that, um, that crisis management uh, ability as well. And um, I... I think sport has taught me as well to try and look at positives because like in sport, if you have a bad day or a bad game, there's no point in dwelling on, you know, the loss um, or what went wrong. What you need to do is you need to learn from it. And business is the same. You know, everyone is gutted when you lose, um, you know, a sale or a client leaves. You know, these are are, are terrible um, things to happen in business. But, you know, what you can, what you have to do is you have to look at it uh, very pragmatically, uh, remove emotion from the scenario and look at it objectively and try and see, you know, what can you learn from it to improve so that not, not only this doesn't happen again, but how can you turn that into a unique differentiator and an advantage going forward? And that, I think, is the key, that extra little step as to, you know, look for the innovation, look for the opportunity, not just how do we stop this happening again? Like you might say, next time fail better. Now you said it, yeah, right. And you know that that the fail better or fail fast, right? So the fail fast was is is a mantra that's often um, that has often uh, you know echoed in my brain uh, since the very beginning because we were failing slowly, yeah. <laughs> very slowly in the early days, and often you know I thought, geez, you know. Uh, you know, should we should we just pack this in and do something else? And there was just this niggling thing in the back of my mind that said, everyone's saying, you know, fail quick, fail fast. Um, you know, it's better to do that. We were fa- failing slowly, and it was painful. But what I was waiting for, or what I knew was different in this scenario, was it wasn't like a point solution uh, that just didn't work. This was a market dynamic that just wasn't moving as quickly as I had had anticipated. So. It was a matter. It was a matter of waiting, but using that period of time to continue to innovate and develop out the product, which ultimately is is why we were acquired and why the company became a such a success in the end, was that by the time the market actually realised these solutions are valuable, it was too late for new starters to actually get into it, yeah. and they couldn't do anything because there is a there is a within this sector there is a bulk of knowledge that needs to be put into a system that can take four five six years no matter how many software developers you put in it no much no matter how much money you throw at it it just can't be done it's just a, a you know a, a very difficult challenge and when companies started to realize that that's when all of the companies like ourselves started to be acquired by larger companies and that's what has driven this kind of uh, crazy ESG uh, could say uh, trend some would call it a bubble um, over the last three or four years you know so it's it's very interesting well to me an important thing is for you is probably motivation what gets you up in the morning and makes you do things like I remember years ago 
I was at a court, I was uh, at an event, and one of the uh, one of the uh, bench, one of the talks the event was basically walking in broken glass, and it was ten meters of broken glass, and the and the guy who was running the running this this uh, this course said, at the end of the day, and at the end of two hours, ten of you are going to walk in broken glass bare, barefoot, and he says, and, and and then he said, and he went and motivated and says what what you can do, and I said to him, I want to do this, and he goes to me, no, you're not because. You're saying that now, but you won't when you get down to it. And he said, and the end, and the end of the day, he said, I want to do it. I did it. I walked in broken glass, didn't cut any feet. And when I finished it, he signed the piece of glass, gave it to me and said, remember, next time you're facing a problem or an issue that you're not sure what to do with, or you may be going to go to ask your boss a pay rise and you were how to do it. Look at this piece of glass that's been signed and dated. And said, this is the day I walked in broken glass for 10 meters. I didn't cut myself. If I can do that, I can do anything. Like guys who walk in hot coals. If they can do yeah. that, you can do anything. So whenever I'm, I'm sure there's times like when you've got done something that was some of us guys won't do and you've done it, goes, I've done this. Next time I, I, I'm thinking about how can I do that? Well, so, well, actually, I did this three years ago. If I can do that, I can do, I can do anything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's certainly amount, uh, certainly, uh, certainly there is an amount of that um, in terms of mind over matter and perseverance and confidence. Um I think perseverance is probably the word. Yeah. And determination. Um, and if you're determined enough, then that, that, that keeps your motivation going. Um, I think everyone uh, doubts themselves at some stage within a startup scenario. And I think having a good group of people around you, I mean, a leader is only as good as the people with them. And, you know, I think that the most important thing I did at the very beginning was picking good people. Yeah. Uh, people I could talk to, people I could rely upon. Even when the chips were down, um, you know, we could sit around and, and figure, figure stuff out. Um, and I think that, that, is, that is perhaps, um, you know, the, the key. Um, you know, you, you can't do all of this yourself. You need to rely on people. You need to have really good people uh, close to you. And, you know, if it doesn't work out, for whatever reason, being able to sit down with those people and, and say, hey, look, it's not working out, and being able to park ways amicably, I think, is also a very strong yeah. uh, thing within a team. Um, and I think it's something that a lot of startups uh, fail to plan for, and it actually is the death knell for a lot of startups. And I've seen a couple of startups where it has where it has killed them, um, you know, where you've got two founders or maybe a third, and, uh, you know, they, they don't agree the what-ifs, uh, even on the back of an envelope, you know, so what if, you know, we run out of money and I have to go take a job or what happens to my shares, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And it might sound small and petty, but actually quite a lot of people will get sidetracked on it and will waste an awful lot of time. And, you know, if one person has to leave, but they don't want to relinquish their shares, then, you know, that's a lot of equity of the business that's now suddenly inactive. Yeah. And so it's a, you know, it's, it's a death knell for the company and everyone loses Whereas, you know, having those discussions as early as possible and saying, well, hey, if I, if, you know, if, you know, if life gets in the way, if I go and, you know, get married, have kids, I need to get a job and I can't stay on this small salary while we get a fundraising together, then what happens to my share? You know, how do we, how do we cater for all of that? And um, I've seen recently where an individual actually contacted me. I gave him that advice about two or three years earlier. And he said to me that that's never going to happen. You know, the, the two of us were, were in sync. And, uh, yeah, he, he contacted me recently and he said, we took that advice three years ago and we wrote something down 
and you know that is what we are now using to kind of uh, yeah. give him an exit and split things up and find a backfill and find replacements. And it's just matter of fact. There's no arguing. There's it's there's no distractions. They can continue to focus on the business. And I think that kind of that kind of thing is important when you're talking about a team and a startup environment and how you how you set yourself up for success. I remember a few years ago, I was at an event and there was it was people were, were talking, and one of the speakers was uh, was uh, somebody who worked for Intel. She's Irish. I've forgotten her name off the top of my head, but. She was saying what she did. And she worked for, for, for Apple, and then she moved on to Intel, and she said, what she learned from Steve Jobs. And then I sat there thinking, okay, the startups in the room. I said, I'm going to be talking, and I'm going to ask them, of your team, whose job and whose was? And that way, you know basically what, what your roles are. And if you get two guys who are two was or two jobs, I'm going, sorry, you're not going to last because you both got the same skill sets. Steve yeah. Jobs wouldn't get me was without was, and vice versa, because... Uh, was was the guy who built the thing from the startup, and Job would motivate him and say, for example, when they first built the first soft computer, it, it had eight chips, and and uh, Jobs goes, well, could you do that with four chips? And Was went away and did that, and every time he you'd uh, be questioned by what was questioned by Jobs. By the way, that's great, but if you could do it with this, could that work? And could you bring yeah. in color and bring in different things? And then they did that, and that that worked very well. But if I see two guys with the same skill sets, I'm thinking there's going to be problems here because how do you do, when yes. when you come to a roadblock or things you mentioned you mentioned yourself, how do you deal with that when you're both going to come at it from the same way? Yeah, well, Roy and I. Uh, so Roy is our CTO, and he yeah. would have been my co-founder, uh, and there was a third individual as well, Derek Spillane, and uh, Roy and I would be. Uh, both techies, but yeah. he is more from the he is more hardcore R and D. Yeah. So he would merely sit in silence for an hour figuring stuff out, whereas I'm more action. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the two of us worked really well together. So you know, um, he would often show me a prototype of something that he put together, and I would be like, you know, that's great, but what about this? What about that? And I suppose we never really made the comparison between ourselves and Steve Jobs and Was or any of that stuff, but we did kind of. We did, we did kind of have that a similar type relationship. Um, yeah. We still do to this day. Um, we've, we've had that conversation even last night on something. So, you know, and that continues, to, that continues to ebb and flow and it's a great relationship. And I think, you know, um, you know the, 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 when we, you know, last year when we were acquired by, by Diligent, um, you know, one of the things Roy and I talked about was you know, how does this change our dynamic? And it, and it shouldn't really. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the things that was quite important for us. You know, we were, we were considering this massive change. Um, you know, is that the right decision? We don't have to do this. We could keep going the way we're going. The company was thriving, um, you know, doing really, really well. But I think our ambition, our ambition to get the software in as many hands as possible um, was kind of, you know, hampered because we were going we, we did a fundraising round um, back in 2012 and that was fine but it didn't give us the accelerated growth that we needed to get to a, a you know yeah. a significant series a or series b so we had to do it organically so we you know we we uh, bought out our investors in uh, 2016 uh, in what some would call an mbo uh, where roy and i took on a significant amount of debt and risk to do that and at the time again it was something that was you know deemed as being quite mad and daft but um 
thankfully the Bank of Ireland backed us and uh, they believed in us and uh, I think it was we only repaid some of that I think that debt was only repaid about three or four months before the company was acquired as, as luck would have it but the um, the company grew from strength to strength after that point because I, th I think Roy and I kind of had a, a you know a fire to our feet you know we had we, you yeah. know we had, we had kind of we kind of put our money where our mouth was and we kind of said look we're going our own way with this. We're going to move the company into the direction we feel right, even though it's not very popular with, with the investors. Um, so we did that. We took control. We moved it into that direction. That paid dividends very, very quickly. The company starts to grow grow quickly. And and then when kind of diligent made the approach, I mean, we've had loads and loads of approaches since 2017, since things started to accelerate. We always just said no. Um, we had loads of offers of Series A, you know, massive uh, funding yeah. rounds and we always just said no because we were growing organically quite quickly and it was in a steady manner it wasn't accelerated it wasn't explosive it was steady strong and steady and we were uh, you know we were picking up really good clients so we did that and then when, when diligent came along they said look we, we want to buy you and this is the situation we looked at it from the perspective of you know diligent have access to 25,000 customers, uh, they're in 130 com countries, 2,000 employees, they're growing quickly, and you know they're well-known in the boardroom. Now, we sell into the boardroom. Yeah. Diligent are best known for their board's products, and they're probably, they're, they're, they are the global leader in terms of software that boardrooms use to conduct their board meetings. So Roy and I immediately said, well, look, we've built the system from the ground up from the very early days to make this mass market. What better company out there? What is there a better company out there than Diligent to put the Acuvio software in the hands of the board members as this thing grows? Um, and so we went through all of that, and that's that made a hundred percent sense to us. The market is at the highest I've ever known it to be, um, particularly in the ESG space. Um, you know, it's, it's bananas, absolutely yeah. bananas. Um, you know, being on the other side of the fence now and, and looking outward to other companies to, to perhaps that we, we could acquire or even personally stuff that I'm investing in, that, you know, it's it's just at such a peak. Um, and somebody, somebody coined the phrase a couple of weeks ago that it's peak ESG. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's, um, it's, it's you know, that, that's why the acquisition uh, with Diligent made sense in, from a marketing or from a market perspective, an access perspective, but also from a technological perspective, they had recently acquired a GRC or a governance risk and compliance solution um, called Galvanize. Um, and it made even more sense then because they have this automation capability. So we could combine, you know, our ESG and sustainability calculation yeah. engine with their data capture capability and then put that in the hands of the boardroom. Uh, which just makes it a no-brainer, and you know we've seen that already. That even though the integration is still uh, is still in progress, uh, we've picked up some big name brands. We've picked up some great clients, really interesting projects, and you know, diligent have pretty much given us a blank check to kind of go and invent stuff and, and innovate and build on this and accelerate it. And Roy and I are enjoying that, you know, and it's just it's it's really cool. We we are talking. Uh, you know, more frequently now than ever about roadmaps and innovation and what what is the market looking for and what is the next idea and, you know, what is this client looking for? What are they struggling with? How can we solve that? You know, is that something that others are, are struggling with? And, you know, that's really exciting for us and we enjoy that. 
Well, I guess having the blank check means basically you don't you don't have to worry about future directions of, of your product where it'll come from because you know you've got the money to develop it. And also, with Galvanize been in there as well, you're using the technologies that can improve what you offer as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Roy and I are commercial, very commercial by nature anyway, right? So we're not the type to kind of build something for the sake of it being cool. And there's a lot of people like that. Um, we're, we're more about trying to say, you know, when we're looking at something, you know, is this something that solves a burning issue? And let's put a monetary value on that issue. You know, what will people pay for this? So we're, we're quite, and we use that, that kind of mentality to prioritize things. Um, the other thing we do when we're looking at prioritizing new functions, new features, uh, new product uh, modules is, you know, a lot of a lot of the time, larger companies focus on customer demands. Yeah. But often, especially in a sector like ESG, where it's completely new, right? It, it, it there's there's stuff, there's new legislation, there's new reporting initiatives coming out every month, and it's evolving so quickly that sometimes customers don't have a clue what it is they want or what they need and it's it's up to people like us to actually say well with this thing coming down the track what do you think of this and sometimes they would be they sit back and say i've never have thought of that that is amazing can i have it now when can i have it how much does it cost i don't care just give it to me and that's a great response to get that's quite that's kind of one of the exciting things about the esg and sustainability space is that there is that dynamic. There is that. Uh, it is new. It is fresh. Uh, there is still loads of scope for innovation. Um, and yeah, ultimately, look, I'm not going to stay in diligent forever. I will, you know, move on. But I have a mission here to achieve, which I feel is to get this into the mass market, get it into the most hands possible. Um, and then I feel that my mission is achieved here. Once I've achieved that, yes, I will take a break. Yeah, then I will start something else. And there's a, a number of other ideas there. But in the meantime, uh, keeping the focus on uh, keeping the focus on growing the diligent ESG yeah. uh, business. One thing I will say is because you're kind of pioneers in what you do, and you can say you're experts in the area. Because then that's doing that. So that that to me is a good selling point. And someone can say, "Yeah, I'm experts in the area," and nobody can say you want because no one else is really doing what you're doing. Which, yeah. if you're in a startup and you're going 100%. to an area that's brand new, and no one else is doing that, within two years, a startup can say, I'm an expert in the area, and no one can say you want because no one else is doing it. By the time yeah. others catch up, you've either uh, sold yourself to somebody else, or, or you've, you've done so well, it's harder to uh, catch up with you. Yeah, look, there's, there's a good bit of that. Um, there, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a rare, it's a very rare thing to have uh, somebody with a technology head that understands a piece of subject matter so detailed. Yeah. Um, and that applies not just across ESG and sustainability, climate change, carbon reporting, all that stuff. It applies in multiple other sectors. And that is definitely something that I look for. Um, you know, I'm investing in startups. I'm, I'm involved in a few series, series A as a follow-on and stuff like that. And that's one thing that I look for is, you know, do the founders, are they passionate and expert in the subject matter? But also, I look for a technology head. Yeah. It's that combination, um, and and sometimes you come across companies that have you know a great salesperson um, or a great marketeer, and 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 while that addresses a, a need in the startup, it, it doesn't give it that uh, that that's that special spark in my view. Yeah. I think that special spark can only really come from a technologist that understands the subject matter passionately. If you have that combination, I think you're into something really big 
Um, yeah. Because I've seen people like, for example, Bill Gates, who he started off as an entrepreneur, he, he meant something. And because he was in a pioneer area of developing an operating system, he got in at the, at the right time. And that made the company what it is now because he said, I'm an expert in the area. Even though he wasn't really, he, he, he claimed to be because no one else was doing what he was doing. And someone like Steve Jobs, yeah. very similar, what he was doing, I'm an expert in the area, what he did. Now, obviously, they weren't, they weren't, but everything that we're doing in the past 40 years has been defined by Apple or Microsoft. Everything that we use is based on those two, like Apple did the first commercial GUI interface that, that sold the mass market. Then Microsoft copied that and, and, and made it more mass market than it was. Then you got basically the first touchscreen devices. They were done before, but Apple came along and made it better. You can talk about music stores, Apple came along and made it better. And the other thing that yeah. Microsoft have done too, like Windows, for example, when, when they yeah. developed that, they've done things with that that you wouldn't think possible, but now they've made it a lot easier to install it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, and that's, that's the benefit of that subject matter expertise. And if that subject matter expertise is actually at the, you know, in the boardroom, then you can drive the direction of the company in the direction it needs to. Um, you know, all too often you come across, um, you know, companies that are maybe driven by marketing sound bites or trends and yeah. analyst reports. And, you know, they maybe buy it, buy too much into that. Um, when in our early days, the analyst reports were pointing us all towards EHS. And we disagreed. And all of the companies that follow DHS uh, ultimately are less valued now. Yeah. Uh, we remained focused on an area that the analyst deemed um, you know, irrelevant. But now the big analysts are all coming back now and they've got a, a, an entire category based on ESG. And the criteria or they make their matrix is based on the acuvial functionality set. Yeah. So, you know, while at the time we probably took the path less chosen, um, it has certainly proven uh, itself to be uh, the correct path um, so, in the longer. So I guess basically you, you more tell money would be entrepreneurs stick to your guns, and if you're passionate in what you believe in, keep the passion there. Like like Steve Jobs would say, stay full, stay hungry. For example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the, there's an added bonus within this area of kind of ESG and climate change and sustainability in that. You know, you, you do, like, in, in the years to come, I'll always look back on this startup um, as, you know, my my first proper startup, my first uh, success. But I will look back on it in the, in the context of, you know, I helped over 120 people or over 120 large enterprises globally reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by almost 30%, yeah. um, you know, collectively. And, you know, that's something that if you know, things continue the way they're going and things do get quite bad and the, the whole climate change thing that at least I can say, oh, look, I did my piece um, and I did it in a significant manner. And I'm hoping that with diligence that we can actually, you know, improve those numbers again so that we can not just bring it to a hundred odd enterprise companies, we can bring it to thousands of companies and help them reduce their impact overall. But also outside of the whole climate change thing, you know, ESG or environmental social governance, is a, is a, a lot about um, other things as well, such as equality in the workplace, um, you know, such as treating people fairly, acting with integrity. Yeah. And if we can do that across a number of different companies, and I, I think that's a that's a mission well worth it. Um, just having it as a, as a tech startup makes it an added bonus. And I guess if you can say you can do this with Epstein as a tree hugger, it's even better. 
You're seeing somebody that basically yeah. is competent. Yeah, and look, there was always that accusation. You know, people would often have looked at me sideways and said, "This guy is doing greenhouse gas emissions. Is he is he a tree hugger or what?" Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't claim to be a tree hugger. I think uh, I think uh, I was. Uh, I think probably one of. The, I, I think there's a there's an opportunity. Um, there is a commercial opportunity in uh, looking after the environment, and I think if you combine that passion for you know, looking after the environment, looking after the planet with creating a good yeah. business, then that's that's a business worth fighting for, you know. Um, and there are plenty of examples out there of it. And I would I would always say to people, you know, there, there's lots of people come to me with ideas where they're just going to get stuff made, um, you know, a widget or something, and you know, uh, gets something made out of heavy plastic, and they they they, they just follow that route and they're just going to sell this widget left, right, and center, but they're smart people. And I would often say to them, look, is there a way that you could do this, maybe have a more positive impact on the planet or on society as a whole? And, you know, you'd be very surprised the amount of people that actually turn around and say, I didn't realize that creating, you know, 20,000 of these widgets is actually going to have such a bad impact. Um, and they would actually then spend a bit more time and maybe sourcing, sourcing, um, better, more um, environmentally friendly raw materials for those products, or even spending a little bit more time on looking at their suppliers that are making these in um, in, in third party or third world countries, and just making sure that there's uh, you know good working, uh, good workplace um, health and safety, and just making sure that the people there are well looked after. You know, even simple things like yeah. that, I think, often gets. And three and thick, and the obvious thing is. Can you make sure the widget lasts longer than it normally lasts? So it's not going to replace as much. So if you're not replacing it as much, that's good for the environment as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the, the fast fashion thing has come and gone, you know, and I think um, more and more people now are, are looking at, you know, buying better uh, quality clothing uh, that lasts longer rather than having throwaway um, items that are cheap and cheap yeah. cheerful. And, you know that's that's encouraging. I see that also. I, I have three small kids, and I and I see that as well. Even in our friends and relatives, you know, with toys and stuff like that, they're they're also looking at. Uh, yes, of course, I've got a two boys who like to, to break things, like most little little kids. But uh, they are looking at you know stuff that is more uh, robust that will last time, as opposed to you know, you know, in, in years gone by where a lot of it was very disposable. You know, they they you know. It's probably played with once or twice, and then it goes in the bin. Yeah. I think it's just horrible and horrific. And uh, you know, if we can if we can move to a more sustainable society at all levels, then I think we're run a run a winner. And before we finish off, any piece of advice that you were given that you would give to somebody else? Yeah, I mean, in the in the startup space, in in more general terms. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, if you're starting a, if you're starting a, a startup. Um, I suppose, you know, at the top level, um, make sure you believe in it as a, as, uh, you know, and the mission, not just as a means to make money. If it's a means to make money, um, then you probably don't have the passion for it, yeah. right? So if it's something that you truly believe in and you, you believe that it can change the world or change people or change for the better, then that's something that, you know, is easier to persevere with and it's easier to get people motivated as well on. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is team, 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 team. Spend time on putting uh, the greatest team together that you can. And in order to do that, don't be greedy with equity. 
um, you know, get the best people in and, you know, give them a good chunky slice of equity so that you can depend upon them. Yeah. Um, I, I see so many startup uh, founders saying, oh, well, I own 95% and I'm going to give my CTO 1% and I'm going to give this person 1%. Not, you know, if you're a good start, if everyone's taking the risk of getting involved in a startup, then, you know, be generous with the equity and it'll work out for everybody in the end. And that would be the two key things I would yeah. I would say. And uh, the third thing I would say, I suppose, is, is don't be afraid to, to, to look for help from the usual suspects like the County Enterprise Board, the Enterprise Ireland, but also people who have been through it. People who have been through it are usually um, fairly open. And I owe uh, a debt of to a lot of different people um, in the Irish tech industry who have, you know, given me tips and tricks along the way and have helped me and pointed me um, for for better or worse, in different directions, that has ultimately crafted a, a successful company. So I guess it's talking about karma. If you if you're good to somebody else, they'll be good to you. Correct. Yeah. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And on that note, I'll say thanks for a great conversation, Adrian. Good luck in the future, and hopefully, when you move on to something else, you're going to form another interesting, interesting uh, startup, which I, I look forward to hearing about and reading about and talking about with you. Hopefully, in the future. But thanks, Ron. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.